1: I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today, back at our NBC Sports Charlotte studio, where I am joined once again by the founder and proprietor of the Motorsports Analytics website that features all of the great statistical analysis and data involving NASCAR, and that is David Smith, who is back again, as I mentioned. Thanks for being here, David. Yes. Happy to be here. This is, I always forget to keep track, this is your sixth?
0: I'm a a five-timer now. Five-timer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah
1: the fifth appearance for David Smith right behind Steve Letarte, as one of our favorite guests on the NASCAR NBC podcast, and that's because of all of the great statistical information that David provides on his website, Motorsports Analytics. Subscription base, it is worth the subscription. You learn a lot about the game behind the numbers in NASCAR. And I should start out by just prefacing this by saying we're taping this on the Wednesday before Michigan. We're taping this in the afterglow of Chase Elliott. And David, you just had a post up on your website about Chase Elliott's breakthrough win at Watkins Glen. And made an interesting point. You said essentially like that the schedule had broken in Chase's favor that led to this win at Watkins Glen.
0: To me, the fascinating part of Chase Elliott's first win is that it is the perfect representation of what modern-day NASCAR is. Since double-file restarts were implemented and stage racing was created, this has become a stylized Sport styles make races. It is. It's no different. You sit down to watch a, a, a mixed martial arts fight, and you hear a, a, a breakdown of well, if it if it goes to the ground, that this fighter is going to be really good. But if they stand up and trade punches, then the other guy has a chance. That's racing. Now you don't you don't know how a, a race is going to break. And in the case of Watkins Glen for Chase Elliott, Chase has struggled on restarts this year. To wit, his average finish to this point is thirteenth. In races with eight or more restarts, he's averaging a 21.7 place finish, okay? That trails Chris Busher at 18.3, Casey Kane at 21.0, and Michael McDowell at 21.2. Now, in races with less than eight restarts, he's averaging a 9.8 place finish. That trails only three guys, and I believe you would call them the big three, Kyle Busch, Kevin Harvick and Martin Truex, all of a sudden he's in a very different conversation. Watkins Glen played out perfectly for him. They had, there was an entire final stage that went caution free. Chase's best attribute three years into his career is his long run passing ability. And if you give him long runs and no restarts, he's gonna be in really good shape. And by the way, he had a very fast car, he had clean air. That was perfect. That was that was his style in a race that broke in his favor sort of culminating in a summer stretch that sure feels Taylor made to highlight his best attributes.
1: And when I say the schedule broke in his favor is what you wrote, what you meant by that is that he fares better, as you just said, in races with fewer restarts.
0: Yeah, eight was the average number of restarts last year. And looking at that as just the barometer, in races with less than the average number... Less than eight restarts. That's his wheelhouse. And there are 16
1: races like that on the schedule and one of them is Watkins Glen, and we're in a sweet spot here where there's a few more coming.
0: For your listeners, Chase currently ranks 17th in both preferred groove restart retention and non-preferred groove restart retention, so below average. In a race that takes Hanna a lower number of restarts, that minimizes his weakness. The longer the runs, the more that you're going to be able to rely upon your strength. Chase Elliott, ever since, I, I mean, I think he came out of the, you know, the truck series, he was an efficient passer, but day one in the Cobb series, he was an efficient passer, and that's maintained. Um, that's been his strong suit. Now, he's only 22. Um, eventually, he can add new strengths, one of them being restarts. He's going to have to address that problem at some point, and as his strengths grow, so will his opportunities for wins. I think Sunday's race was the first of many. It just happened that that was an event that really fit his style. That yeah. magnified what he does well, and he capitalized.
1: And it, not to say that during that race that he had mediocre restarts, because actually you could say he was the best <laughs> restarter sure. probably during that event.
0: But also the perfect encapsulation of having your weakness minimized. Right. He didn't have to do that too often, right. I- including in that entire final stage where, point. hey, he's, he's he, it's green, he's got clean air, he's got the lead. He was going to be very tough for anyone two pass, and mm-hmm. the reigning series champion, who was also the only other road course winner this year, ran out of gas trying to pass him. So, impressive showing. It was a race that was sort of tailor-made to, to fit his best That's attribute. interesting.
1: And, you know, eight runner-up finishes prior to this win, and I think that you could point to restarts as probably being the primary factor that he didn't win <laughs> most of those races, I think. I mean, certainly Dover last year was an instance in which he didn't manage the lead well, but there were other races at Michigan where, as you said, that probably is the weakness in his game that had kept him from, from breaking through yeah, so you far. You
0: never know how um, a race is going to break. I yeah. mean, it, it, when we get down to Homestead, um, and this was actually a part of my, my playoff preview last year on motorsportsanalytics.com, um, it was a look at different drivers and their abilities and different scenarios. Homestead, deciding your championship in a one-race uh, format, it's going to come down to just how that race breaks out. If right. it's, which, if, st-
1: which means just where the cautions fall and yeah. what and strategies if, teams are on?
0: I mean, look, it, we'll use Kyle Larson as an example. He's had a decent car this year in terms of speed. He's been in the top 10 all year. But it's not the kind of speed that Kevin Harvick and Kyle Busch have. But if it so happens that it's a late race restart, Kyle Larson's got a really good chance. He's one of the best restarters now, probably the best young restarter in NASCAR. That's... sort of what you want and again it comes down to styles now make races and if it breaks in your favor then you're in a good position
1: but the play devil's advocate two years ago the season finale at miami in 2016 kyle larson i think led the most laps comes down in the lead on that final restart in overtime with two to go and jimmy johnson (laughs) passes him yeah which i think obviously stunned everybody but that's another example i guess how it could work well and the other way in, in
0: that specific race we went into it again discussing sort of scenarios Jimmy Johnson was not a a good restarter that year, Mm -hmm. but in that race, he was perfect. And, and, hey, he won a championship. Sometimes you show up and and you you make the plays that win the game. So
1: Chase Elliott, you don't feel as if, was demonstrably better this year than last year or 16 where he had opportunities to win both of those years no and
0: i didn't buy into the fact that i think he had like a 18th place finish through the first eight races right average finish. so it right. i i didn't buy into the fact that he was actually struggling now, obviously right. the the speed in the hendrick cars have just been lower but how much is that actually on him it, it didn't change and then once the schedule sort of broke going to these two mile tracks that allow for long green flag runs all of a sudden, that's that's Chase Elliott territory, um, at least right now in 2018. And sometimes that's just sort of how the the schedule breaks in your favor. I wrote last year during the playoffs, for instance, about Jamie McMurray's passing ability, how he, he sort of needed intermediates <laughs> to, to start passing cars efficiently and it didn't happen until the playoffs because there was a, a preponderance of intermediate tracks in, in the final 10 races. Oh, lo and behold, he's all of a sudden, there's there's the Jamie who's more efficient than usual. And, oh, he's done, he did a lot to improve in the playoffs. Like, no, the, the schedule just broke in his favor. He's yeah. finally going to tracks in which he can he can use one of his attributes.
1: Going back to what you're saying, David, about how races unfold now is such a big part of who wins them and not so much about driver sounds like even car. When did you start to see that trend? When when did you feel like you could start saying that about NASCAR? And it's something I've heard Parker Kligerman say on NBCSN NASCAR America this year is that he feels as if the gap from the front few cars to the bottom few cars, like the gap in speed is larger than it's ever been. And I presume that's partially because, you know, those top 15, sometimes 20 cars, but really top maybe 10, 15 cars are just, those teams are so evenly matched and, strong in terms of budgets and personnel. Is that
0: kind of what's causing this trend? The speed is certainly more top-heavy than normal. That won't be the case every year. It just happens to be the case this year. And there's a lot of chatter about it's the same three guys that win every weekend. Well, last year it was Martin Truex winning all the vital races. So we've actually gained it, We gained by two. Um, <laughs> it's actually more, there's more parity. There, there's year. more parity <laughs> this year. <I> don't <laughs> argue. Um, it's a good way to look at it. But it, yeah, yes, speed is top heavy. But as far as styles go, and with respect to NBC and Fox, I think this is something that is undercovered, is that, these drivers have styles. Some of them have things they do better than other things. You might be a, a good restarter. You might be a good short-run racer. And then on long runs, you fall apart. It's, uh, it's not your thing. Actually, you bring up Parker... And I hope that I'm not speaking out of school, but earlier in the year, Parker told me that he and Ryan Truex had a conversation about some of the stats uh, that are on motorsportsanalytics.com. Got into a friendly argument. Parker is a very good long run passer. Ryan Truex is a very good restarter. And their argument was which statistic or or which attribute is better. I told Parker, you're thinking about this the wrong way. If I needed a, a late race restart to win a race, no offense, I'd rather have Ryan. But if this race is gonna end with a long run, then you're my guy, Parker. Like that's gonna change every weekend. You're going to see something different and a different strength is gonna be magnified.
1: I mean it's truly like that adage horses for courses. Yeah. Then essentially it really is tracks. It really is and matches the style.
0: Yeah, and, and with the advent of the double file restart. So um, really about 10 years ago, yeah, we feel it's And we've added stages. So yeah. we, we know that we're going to have, uh, outside of the start, you're going to have two restarts. That has become uh, a trait. I'd argue it's one of the most important traits to have in terms of evaluation down the road, you might punt on someone that's exclusively a long run driver with the assumption that we're just gonna have a lot of short runs. Give me a good restarter and I'll figure the rest out.
1: Prior to 2009 then, every driver still had a style, obviously in that era of NASCAR, but maybe it didn't matter as much. You could overcome some of the limitations of a driver's style at certain tracks or with a good car. It seems that way. Um,
0: I don't have the same data pre-2009 as I do now. Um, I would love to pick a driver's brain that competed in both eras to ascertain what exactly changed. But yeah, yeah, maybe it's nostalgia. But man, it sure seems Dale Earnhardt was really good at everything. I mean, and mm. Jeff Gordon was good at everything. That may not have been the case. Restarts were a little bit more, or were, were more simple uh, when you're yeah. just lining up next to lapped traffic, um, and you didn't have to worry about really anybody passing you for at least a couple of corners. But it's a it's a different game nowadays. There are certain elements of a driving repertoire that. For at least a single driver, might be stronger than others.
1: I want to come back to this eventually because we're going to talk about the big three. We will talk about their styles as part of that discussion. But w- one more thing on Chase Elliott that we've talked about that I've asked you about in the past because I value your opinion highly. You provide great insight into why things are the way they are in terms of who's good and who isn't. And in the Chase Elliott discussion, going back five or six years ago, when he was running, I believe, was it a Canon series? Then with a, a Hendrick-affiliated yeah. type team.
0: Yeah, that actually might have been more than 5 years ago. Yeah. I yeah. guess
1: it was like probably 2012 or yeah. 13, probably around 2011, that. time. 2011-2012. Yeah. Yeah, around days. that time frame. You used to do prospect ratings in which you'd rate 100 guys?
0: Oh, a lot. Still do. And still if do, you okay. go to Motorsports Analytics right now, I've got a top 75. All right, so you uh, do still do yes.
1: top 75 prospects. Okay. Chase Elliott was not always high on your list. And at the time, I think you said it was because it was hard to evaluate him because of he had such A-league, first-class equipment and personnel that were Yeah,
0: okay. So probably back in 2011, 2012, I definitely didn't think Chase Elliott would be uh, the guy, capital G. I thought he'd be just a guy, lowercase g. And, and that, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean bust. I'm sure there are listeners in Dawsonville, Georgia, that will <laughs> assume that I'm calling him a, he would have been a massive bust. That's not the case. They're going to put you in front of a um, pool
1: hall siren and just play it for four hours straight. Sure.
0: But this is um, a problem in late model racing, both then and now, The budget disparity between late model teams is hilarious. If it wasn't for the World Series champion Houston Astros in their rebuild saying that we are no longer valuing high school hitting stats. They don't tell us anything. Hmm. Most high school pitchers are awful and in no way would that ever represent what we are drafting these hitters to do. Team rule: They no longer use high school hitting as evidence to support drafting a player. I have adopted. <laughs> no, so, no. So that is analogous no, to late model racing. No longer <laughs> using late model. So if one of your listeners was going to go to their local short track this weekend, what are the odds that they are seeing one future Cup Series driver? Not very good. What are the odds that they're going to see five future Cup Series drivers in that race? Not zero. Not happening. <laughs> Let's okay. Just say that. Yeah. So when a young driver uh, shows up with a big budget, strong equipment, everything under the sun that he could ask for, and he's winning 20 races a year, stress-free because no one's going to touch them. It's a story when they don't win. What about that is reflected at the highest levels of NASCAR? Not a damn thing. Like, mm. it just it's not. That's, it's a, we're talking about a different sport. Chase Elliott was famously... Very good in late models. He was winning 20 races a year. You heard about it every weekend. Again, it was a story when he didn't win. So, what happened when he moved up into heavier cars? In the USAR Pro Cup Series, at a time when that car translated to the Xfinity car at the time, Chase Elliott won one race. In the Arca Series, Chase Elliott won once. And in K&N, he won just once. And it's actually worse than that. In, in 2011, in the k and East, Chase Elliott ranked 32nd out of 34 drivers in Pierre. In 2012, he improved, ranking 13th out of 32 drivers. By the way, number ones for both of the years in 2011 was Matt DiBenedetto. Also in the top five, Daryl Wallace and Brett Moffitt. So there's some strong competition. And in 2012, a young whippersnapper named Kyle Larson ranked number one <laughs> in that same sack category. Right. So. Yeah, I, had, I, I questioned it. To me, when Chase legitimized himself as a prospect was when he was passing efficiently in the Xfinity Series. It wasn't necessarily his success. That was a very good junior motorsports team. That crew chief is now a Cup Series crew chief um, when they won the championship, uh, Greg Ives. But he was able to navigate traffic like a pro. And yeah. from where I sit, I could not tell you where that came from. It kind of just happened that way. Now, the flip side to this is we'll take Ty Majeski uh, as an example. A very, very well-regarded late model driver. Again, wins 20 races a year in Wisconsin in the Midwest. Comes to Roush Fenway Racing. This season, he ranks last in Pier and has the highest crash rate. Small sample size, you can make that argument. The the transition to this level is very tough. But if you're a, a worker in the Roush Fenway fab shop and wrecked race cars keep coming back, you're gonna start to question the validity of those late model races. It's only natural. I'm not saying that it should be, but I can't blame someone if that thought entered their brain because if, if we're being honest, Ty Majewski's out there kicking the asses of kids and older drivers that are never making it to any high level in NASCAR. So I've dropped that. I've put attention on the on the heavier body stuff where yeah. we see a little bit more competition. We see the budgets more equal. They're not going to be equal, but they're more equal than they are on the grassroots levels. And in that sense, I think Chase was a little bit of a late bloomer. Sounds that way. Disguised yeah. as a prodigy.
1: It Sounds that way. So your prospect ratings, you still do those. Yes. But you no longer use late model stats.
0: Nope, done. And, and So
1: it's only like K&N onward. K&N onward. Okay.
0: Um, now, I, I certainly don't want to turn your listeners off of grassroots racing. One of the reasons that sprint cars and midgets will put it under the umbrella of USAC, one of the reasons USAC is well regarded is there's just a lot of talent and There's the thought that dirt racing teaches car control. I think Kyle Busch and Joey Logano and Eric Jones and some of those guys have dispelled the thought that (laughs) car control is exclusive to dirt racing. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) but to me, and one of the things that isn't stated enough, USAC is a relatively affordable form of racing. So if you are a naturally talented kid, money is not as big of a hurdle for you. And because it's affordable, you can be maybe not a natural talent, but you can race three times a weekend at three different tracks for less than the cost of one late model race. And that's a lot of seat time and a lot of experience. And you get better that way. And that's the whole point of racing in the grassroots levels. If NASCAR is your goal, is to get better. To me, that's what makes USAC appealing. And that's, that's sort of a form of grassroots racing that... That that has things going. It it's more right than wrong. That's yeah,
1: a little bit more reliable in terms of being able to evaluate.
0: Yeah. So I ability. can't. You know, if you know Joe Gibbs Racing or Ganassi, I don't know that they do, but if they want to put more emphasis on USAC, that I understand. I mm-hmm. mean, I, that's that's something that you you really can't argue too much with because there, the cream rises and there aren't a lot of questions you know to answer. You just got to get them in a heavy bodied car, get them the pavement experience, and. A lot of them turn out really good.
1: So, uh, just to put a period on this, peer, I should always mention this at the top of episodes with you, that is performance and equal equipment rating. Production and equal equipment rating. Uh, Production and equal equipment rating. Yes,
0: it's a metric that utilizes timing and scoring data to place value on equipment and team strength, and it helps measure a driver's weighted results output as a single
1: number. It's an attempt to say all things being equal. We think this guy... Is this good, despite being in a lesser car, because he's doing more with it than, say, somebody in a better car who might have ostensibly better results, but should have even better results than that?
0: Yes, this is my uh, uh, this is my OPS, my my my, my <laughs> attempt at that. There are other um, there are. Passing and restarting statistics on motorsports analytics, those are peripheral numbers that will lead you to a result. Mm -hmm. uh, Peer is a weighted result.
1: And so when you say Chase Elliott in 2011 and 2012, his peer was low and then mid-pack, that was because you thought that, hey, this guy isn't quite the equal of a Kyle Larson or somebody of, of that ilk
0: at the time i don't see i don't see how anybody could have came to a different conclusion if they disregarded late model success hendrick motorsport signed him solely because of his success in late models and when that happened look i get it popular kid coming from racing royalty i totally understand it but there were more question marks there than I think they thought there
1: were. Yeah, but like you said, then, in the Xfinity series, winning, yes. winning a championship.
0: Yeah, I was sold. But before before his second year in Xfinity, he was my number one prospect. Yeah. So I came around. Yeah. And... and that's, so, that is That is what happens. That is what you're supposed to do. Sometimes you're it to is develop. just
1: being a late bloomer. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's the yeah. XFamily Series More names are made. Your passing statistics that you mentioned, David. Chase Elliott is, is in the top 10 of your most recent survey of that. Uh, the one that really struck me that was really interesting, Kevin Harvick, by the way, is, is the leader in terms of top 10 passers right now in Cup. Kyle Larson, number two. Number three, Jimmy Johnson. Yeah. And you had an interesting take on that. You said even though he's winless, his passing ability... Remains unimpeachable. So uh, I guess two questions on that. One, the fact that he is ranked as like the number three passer in Cup, does that sort of reinforce the perception that even though he's in one of the longest slumps of his career and and hasn't won in over a year now, some of that talent hasn't gone dormant. It's not a matter of hey, he's on the cusp of turning 43 and and we're witnessing the fade. Or is it also that? he's had to pass a lot more cars because he still isn't qualifying very well. As we talked about earlier, the Hendrick cars are still lacking in speed a little bit and he's had to do more passing. Is that part of it too?
0: Yeah, uh, I rank the top 10 passers on NASCAR.com. I implore all your listeners to go there and and agree with me. If you disagree, don't tell me anything. (laughs) Um, No, Jimmy Johnson has been one of the sport's top passers, arguably the sport's top passers since uh, the implementation of NASCAR loop data. Without a doubt, one of the most aggressive drivers I've ever had the pleasure of watching. Carves through traffic like a surgeon. He currently ranks fourth in, uh, in surplus passing value. He's passing in a similar clip. What has changed are the drivers he's passing. Talent will prevail if you're within your surroundings. Could Jimmy Johnson pass as efficiently right now against Kevin Harvick, who has the fastest car on the planet? Probably not. That's going to be a tough challenge, even for a, a guy as, as wildly talented as Jimmy. But, look, running 12th, that's not really a, a deterrence to his ability. He can get you a spot. And yeah. then I spe- I spe- yeah. On a long run, give him some time. He, he can get you one or two. I'm comfortable relying
1: on Jimmy Johnson. So you don't see any major drop-off then yet in his skills, based on that. Based on that, even though he's... He's right. not getting the same results. He's starting back in the back. He can still get through traffic and get...
0: Somewhere. Yeah, you worry, you worry about the ability to get results. So right now, I think we are arguing the merits of the technical aspects of his swing and, and maybe not putting a lot of emphasis on whether he's getting on base. He can still swing a bat, right? He's still passing cars at a high clip. Based on what that 48 team's done this year, I don't know how much he can ask for. Chad Knauth has also supplied a healthy number of positions during green flag pit cycles. So they're clearly aware of their speed deficit. I mean, probably painfully aware. They see it every week, and they're going through the motions of figuring out how to, how, how on earth do we make up the deficit? With Jimmy, he can only, only make up so much. He can only catch so many cars and pass so many cars. But if if you need one spot, he's a good guy to rely. Is that the key?
1: Maybe overlook key to his greatness is that his ability to get through traffic is
0: virtually unmatched. I think it's just it was just really efficient for him. He doesn't he doesn't waste. Um, you know, three corners or, or mm-hmm. a lap and a half trying to get by one guy and, and losing time. He's really efficient. Right. Um in his in his heyday his passes were crisp just perfect, one corner, knew exactly what he needed to do. Daryl Waltrip will say it on Fox, the, the adage, it's, it's easy to catch someone, it's hard to pass. Jimmy didn't have that problem. He, he could catch and pass you.
1: So we've had one baseball analogy, actually a couple of baseball analogies so yeah. far. And You'll find
0: that I do a lot of cross sport <laughs> comparisons. <laughs> which
1: is fine, which is good to some extent. You did this as well with a very interesting post you had about a month back, I believe, about the inefficiency of pit crews and should teams be spending as much on tire changers as they spend on engineers in many cases spending more on tire changers and you used this analogy with european soccer where goalkeepers and defenders there are undervalued because statistical analysis shows that when a team concedes no goals it's worth more than scoring a goal yes but of course everybody's always focused on the offense 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 Uh, And sometimes it just makes more sense to just focus on the guys who keep the ball from going in the net. So relating this to NASCAR, you made the point that pit crew members are getting paid more than engineers, who essentially in this case would be the goalkeepers and the defenders in NASCAR, and that there's this dearth of engineers right now, and really for the last few years, and that they are more important because... They are setting up the car and determining speed, and they're the people who make the drivers go fast, and they have more of an impact than those making the swifter pit stops. So I laid it all out there. I just want to put one more nugget out there because you did some good reporting on this. You had a crew chief estimate that top end tire changer makes about two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, while an elite lead engineer makes about one hundred sixty to one hundred seventy five thousand dollars a year. So essentially, the top end pit crew members are getting paid about. Uh, one and a half times one and a half an times. engineer. So yeah, I laid that all out a lot for you. I'll just let you take it from there.
0: I talked with seven team members uh, across six different teams. The ones I talked to when I asked them about pay scales, there wasn't any pausing to do the math in their <laughs> head. Yeah. There, there was never uh, a, a, hey, um, let me ask around and I'll circle back to you there was no hesitation. They, they, they knew the answer off the top of the tops of their heads. So Which tells you th- that they've this, been thinking about this. This, <laughs> this is, this is yeah. a, a discussion that has taken place, maybe just hasn't been brought to light. Um, I put a lot of pressure on myself to make this article bulletproof, and even then, by nature, I'm paranoid that there are holes, but I, I believe the numbers are solid. Um, I, looked, I, I used a, a Spearman's rank uh, correlation to look at the correlations between top pit crews of 2016 and 2017 and the speeds of the cars from those teams with top pit crews. And speed is a much stronger correlation than pit crew members. So now I'm obligated as a a somewhat of a data journalist to say that correlation does not always equal causation. Uh, However, uh, I'm comfortable saying that the pay structure with the NASCAR teams is out of whack. We're valuing pit crew members, the the -the over-the-wall pit crew guys, for uh, minimum returns, very little impact. I'll give you an example. The second Richmond race of last year, Matt Kenseth had a a strong car in the early going, led 88, 89 laps, pitted under yellow. His crew proceeded to record an error-free pit stop one of the fastest stops that they had all year, one of the 40 fastest times in 2017, and they lost three spots.
1: I believe it was a sub-12-second stop, right? It was like 11.7 seconds or something. Yes,
0: a good stop for what we're attempting to accomplish. Lost three spots because three teams... Took two tires. (laughs) take two (laughs) tires. (laughs) Yeah. Kenseth never regained the lead, okay? He was mired in traffic the rest of the night, and he eventually crashed out of the race. So, the pit crew accomplished what you are paying them to do, but their impact never had a chance to matter in the grand scheme of the race or the season. You also have to consider that on a, um, a yellow flag pit stop, and we'll talk exclusively, exclusively about those because there are more things occurring during green flag stops that affect a total stop time and, and track position, but on the yellow flag stop, what ensues immediately after it a restart. So then it becomes, well, we also need to nail the restart in order to either keep or grow the track position. I find it utterly ridiculous that Daniel Suarez has a top 10 pit crew and he's the worst non-preferred groove restarter in NASCAR. That is buying an expensive bottle of wine and pouring it into a glass with a hole in it. That's uh, eventually, you might want to address the glass with a hole in it. Not, Not necessarily the buy more wine. That isn't the answer. The engineers. I wouldn't say that they are drinking the Kool-Aid, but the mood not great. Kind of defeated, accepting defeat. In that, yeah, that's the way things are here.
1: They feel unappreciated, not not just because they're being paid less, probably, but b- right?
0: but but the ones but the ones here, the ones in it, accept it. But that is a problem, not necessarily for them, but for the Attract- future, attracting and, and more attracting talent. more mm-hmm. engineering talent. Brad Keselowski. A few years ago, commented that Penske was going to Europe and Canada to uh, recruit engineers uh, because they were having a tough time doing it in America, uh, keeping uh, recruiting them and retaining them.
1: Because the salary, probably entry level and top one end, of is the, not competitive with
0: one them. of the barriers is that the entry level salary for, say, an Xfinity team is probably in the $50,000 range. And if you are designated to one road crew, you're going to be on the road. More of 33, 35 weekends a year. It's a lot of travel, a lot of long hours. Persalary.com, Duke Energy, also here in Charlotte. Entry-level pay for similar experience is about $65,000. And, oh, by the way, you're not traveling. So... (laughs) Yeah.
1: You have what? to love racing, in other words, to really want to do this. To, to, you have to have that racer's yeah, passion. Yeah, you have
0: to really slog through your life in order to get to that elite pay where then maybe it makes sense or maybe you become a crew chief and you get paid a lot more. But man, that sure isn't appealing mm. right off the bat. So we're losing some of the most intelligent minds we could ever potentially have right from the start because we can't offer pay that's more competitive with just your normal private sector engineering job. That's
1: kind of fascinating because it obviously relates to how the engineering explosion of the last 15 years has affected NASCAR, and there's so much focus on how it's changed things from a simulation perspective, and teams don't even really have to go test anymore because... They have such high-fidelity ways of figuring out how to set up a car before even turning a lap. And all of that is obviously based around engineering, and engineering informs everything about now how a car is set up. But yet, even though NASCAR is like so structured around engineering in that way, it's not really built in a way that it can be competitive with in the field against companies that also utilize engineers, obviously for Duke Energy isn't worried about (laughs) setting up the cars of their maintenance technicians who go out in the field, they're not using engineers for that that same purpose, but they need engineers and they're always going to have that built in advantage of saying, well, we don't have a schedule that's going to put you on the road 150 to 200 days a year, or whatever, 30 to 36 races, and that's, and that's and appealing.
0: You. And that's appealing to someone with an engineering degree and also a family. I mean, that's that's tough to recruit against. It seems like it's
1: almost. I would love. I would love, mo- I would love more
0: intelligence yeah. coming into the sport, but we're really not doing our best to attract them, and with pay structures out of whack.
1: It seems intractable from the schedule perspective, at least in the short term. We know the 2019 schedule is going to be the same length unless somehow you were able to offer a competitive package that allowed a guy to be off the road a little bit. But I think teams generally they just don't work that way. If if you're signing up to be a road engineer, you were on the road the full way. And so the only way to make it up at that point would be a better pay structure or scale. So it has to be more incentive. Pick crew side of this, going back to that, the drop to five man crews make this even more magnified in terms of you know, how much of an impact can you really make now where the stops are. I actually sufficient. don't have
0: twenty eighteen data. What has happened is the stops are slower.
1: You wrote that crews are limited by human physiology here as well, that pretty much reach the outer limits of what a human body. Yeah. Can so do, right? uh, yeah.
0: So the definition of a fast pit stop has changed or is elusive. In that article, I post the forty fastest uh, caution flag pit stop times of 2017. Twenty-two of those forty fell within six one hundredths of a second. It, at some point, we're not uh, attempting to achieve a fast pit stop. We are attempting to achieve a mistake-free pit stop. Right. That was so, the other part I was going to get to you about it. Yeah. So you now consider if you hit all, if the, if the two cars in front of you hit all their marks and you hit all your marks and you're maybe only a little bit faster, you're still not passing those cars. They pitted before you. That's not how that works. You need them to make an egregious error. Therefore, a lot of the pit stop action or the gains and losses that are occurring because of the pit stop are solely dependent on the mistakes of other teams so even then it's another reason to really seriously consider why are we continuing to invest a lot of money in making our pit crews better when it's there's really only, not up to them there's there's track only so position, so fast they can go essentially
1: it's just all about holding serve in that category yeah. so why not redistribute your revenue and spend it on guys who can make your car go faster right yeah who i mean it, I, I there
0: there is an option there is going to be there's going to be a forward-thinking team at some point in the future that is going to say, we are going to punt on pit stops. We are totally fine with having the 20th fastest pit crew. Hmm. And we are going to put all of our resources on people, people making the car go fast. You can, yes, all the elaborate equipment and tools, that cost a lot of money. That will always cost more than the, the pit crew nut itself. But you need people operating those tools. You need people with ideas. Trying to get whatever they can get out of those those elaborate tools.
1: And then the confidence just has to be: if we lose three or four spots on every pit stop, we will gain them back on every restart. If you have a good we, enough, yeah, if you have a good enough driver, if you have a good, good enough restart
0: and a fast enough car, what's the problem?
1: So speaking of that, we'll wrap up here. Going back to drivers and teams that have had both (laughs) that of course would be the aforementioned big three martin tricks jr kevin harvick kyle bush two questions here david we'll start with one statistically could we see this kind of three-headed monster dominating the cup series for the first 70 to 80 percent of the regular season could we see that coming from last year because obviously it it seems like we could i know you wrote about Harvick's surge toward the end of last year truex was the champion kyle bush was uh, the runner-up last year was it obvious that this kind of trend could emerge
0: Yes, because Furniture Row laid out the formula of nailing an intermediate setup. They might be fast at other tracks and they might get wins at other tracks, but really the focus is on the mile and halves. Kevin Harvick very good <laughs> this year on mile and halves. He had the he had the fastest car of the playoffs last season. And, and mind you, there was a, an entire switch from Chevrolet to Ford, and they're working with new notes. Well, now they've they've got those notes and they're putting them to use. Kyle Busch one of the best drivers in the sport with one of the richest teams in the sport that's going to be good and he is now displaying i think charlotte if, if you're going to make a statement that was a, a pretty impressive statement to make and even in Chicago land, he's winning at the at the steep, inter, the steep the steep banked intermediates and the relatively flat intermediate shown some um some versatility in that sense Yeah, they're going to be really tough to beat going forward and in the playoffs. Where, again, intermediates, we're we're kind of in a lull right now, but they'll come back up. That'll be the topic of discussion come playoff time.
1: Now, even though they've been extremely strong at, at the intermediate tracks, but New Hampshire, Harvick was a winner. Sonoma, Truex was a winner. Obviously, Truex and Bush were both factors at Watkins Glen. I don't know if it flies in the face of what you were saying earlier about styles and drivers maybe being more suited for tracks, depending on circumstances and styles and everything like that come into play. If these guys are good, it seems like, this year, everywhere. They're but covered. Why is it just perfect storm of three teams on top of their game and three drivers in the primes of their when careers? Have,
0: when a well-rounded driver drives for a well-rounded team, that's, that's the result. And
1: all three of those guys are, are in that category. Yeah.
0: yeah, they're on a level unto themselves. Unless you can fill all the gaps in your repertoire from passing, restarting speed, pit strategy, if you can you can plug all those up and not only that then do it at an elite level then you're going to be with those guys because that's what they're doing right now if if there is the slightest question mark with a driver or a team it's not getting it done because that's how good those three are
1: i know truex has a few weaknesses like plate tracks kyle bush still his white whales the the daytona 500 uh harvick seems to be I don't know if he has any weaknesses. I mean, he although he wasn't that good, at the Glenn, but it seems like he is as well-rounded as any of those three. But are, are there any other drivers that are even you know taking teams out of it? Are there any other drivers that you would put in the category of those three guys in terms of versatility?
0: Oh yeah, Kyle Larson's the next one. Larson would be the next one. Yeah, if I mean if you can you can you know do a do a fantasy matchup and and plug him and a Stuart Haas car instead of a Ganassi car, you're gonna see some. You're going to see some excitement. He has, um, I mentioned earlier when discussing his KNN East Pier, his statistical profile has been bulletproof at every stop along the way. I don't believe he's had a team that has taken advantage of his immense talent um, and his airtight ability, Um, but once he does, he will be winning a lot of races. And for whatever reason... Chip Ganassi Racing 42 team isn't there yet. Uh, It seems to me they've put all their eggs into the basket uh, of bigger tracks this season. The smaller tracks, which ironically I saw Kyle Larson on Twitter saying he wants more short tracks, but the, (laughs) the smaller tracks have been a trouble spot for them in terms of conjuring speed. They've been able to do it at the bigger tracks. This is why he might be a dark horse for the playoffs. We know that he is good at Homestead. He's also good on intermediates, and there are a lot of intermediates in the build-up to Homestead. So he could be in play. But everywhere else is the trouble spot, and that's where we're kind of losing. That's why he's not included among that big three.
1: We can say about Kyle Larson that he probably carries the car as much as anybody in NASCAR right now. Like, he is making a difference just on his own ability. I think that's fair to say.
0: He's one of the top three passers in the sport, one of the top three restarters. Um, Has age on his side. He's only going to get better. He gets race results. He will drive the car sometimes beyond its capability, and that's... If you're a team owner, that's all you can pay him for right there.
1: And is there any other veteran that you would put in the class of those three plus Larson? I mean, obviously, Logano, Keslowski, Hamlin would probably be talked about in that next tier. Do, do any of those guys?
0: Denny Hamlin's that, been really interesting yeah. this year. He's had a really good season. He hasn't had a speed similar to his Joe Gibbs Racing stablemate, and that might be an issue. But Denny had bad pass efficiencies each of the last three years prior to this one, and he's gotten rid of that problem. He's been actually a very reliable passer. Um, He's typically, in the past, been a pretty clutch restarter, restarting very well in the final 10% of a race. That's a driver who, he can pop up anywhere. It wouldn't shock me if he wanted any track, but there's something missing in the well-roundedness that the other three have that he doesn't. It's just the, the speed isn't there. He and Mike Wheeler have been trying some admirable uh, long-pitting, uh, well, mostly long-pitting attempts this season just to make up track position or try to steal a win. It hasn't worked out.
1: So I think everybody is thinking championship four. I mean, <laughs> everybody's looking at sure. certainly Harvick, Truex, Kyle Busch as probably taking up three of those slots and then the fourth being the wild card. Maybe it's Larson, maybe who knows. Do you have any predictions do you think all three of those guys make the championship round or do you have any predictions on who else could be yes that'll be my
0: prediction i'll take chalk on that all day long you will okay and and your fourth would be larson yeah yeah um yeah sure Because, okay. I mean Larson uh, Larson had a I don't know he was like an, an equipment implosion that uh, second to last uh, a round of the playoffs last year um, and he was leading those races prior to said implosion things could break the right way Chase Elliott could honestly be the dark horse to watch because it goes it, it goes back to what we talked about if a race breaks in his favor and if somehow he can, conjure something he didn't previously have at intermediates that could be one to take a look at and keep in mind each of the last two years he had a faster playoff car than a regular season car and it's rare to that a team would find a speed gain in the middle of a of a season because there's a lot going on but his team has been able to do that so there may be more from chase elliott than what we expect from him sitting here today there might be more in the tank we're just not sure we
1: will definitely keep an eye on that and we will continue to keep an eye on your work you can read david smith's stories and posts and articles at nascar.com and motorsports analytics uh, as always enjoyed speaking with you david yes. thanks for being here great thank conversation. you for having me the nascar NBC podcast is available on apple podcasts stitcher spotify google play as always if you have any feedback Please leave it for me on Twitter at Nate Ryan. And if you're kind enough to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, that really helps us out. Thanks for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast.
0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So.